Many early families in America created and generated their wealth through agricultural real estate. And then those assets were transferred down from one generation to another within those families. And if they ever were sold outside of the family, it was most often to a neighboring individual who was increasing their footprint. So 98% of all U.S. farmland is actually privately held. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is David Chan from Farm Together. Today we're learning all about an innovative agricultural investing model focused on sustainability and being good stewards of the land that they buy. We talk all about how they've worked to mitigate certain risks that I bring up throughout the conversation, how the model works from buying parcels to holding them to ultimately selling them off, who the potential target buyer is, and so much more. A lot of great knowledge in this one. Farmland could be an interesting opportunity, and there's so much knowledge in this conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus mainly on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. And that's when we look forward to seeing you once again. All right. Once again, our guest today is David Chan from Farm Together. Let's go. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dive into farmland investing. Before we get into the model, can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you come from, and what you did before diving into the current venture? Great to be here, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me. And and yeah, of course. So my path to farm together was one largely on on me finding agriculture through a lifelong passion of mine, which is weather and climate. So I studied atmospheric science in undergrad. And I think like many undergrads originally thought that I would go on to get my PhD and find out some groundbreaking news uh, or knowledge on, on climate and how it's changing and I did undergraduate research in college, and I what I realized was that I at least came to my own conclusion that we know what we need to know about how our climate's changing, at least for my lifetime, and I think for at least a generation after me. Now we need folks to do something with that information. So uh, I thought the most incremental change that I could make would be with that knowledge through impact in an industry. And I think investors have a lot of power in how industries operate, businesses operate. So the path to investing in finance for me became a clear one then. And it became more a question on what industry. There's lots of different industries that interact with climate. And I think renewables and and energy are probably the ones that come to mind first for most folks who have that realization. But I actually had a different path and I thought agriculture was a lot more exciting. One, because not many people think about agriculture. I think as a society, we take agriculture for granted and we forget both what a challenge and an opportunity it poses with respect to our environment and sustainability, but also just when you think about society in general and a war and peace and prosperity or or poor, I mean, it, it is embedded in so many different fabrics of the way we live. But when you are in a land of plenty, like many of us in the United States get the benefit of being, you take those systems, those food systems for granted, you take our supply chains for granted, and you don't really understand what goes into 
the investment of land-based food production and farming and how far we've come and where technology is taking us and, and what tomorrow looks like. And it's all very exciting. So that's why I thought agriculture made a lot of sense. And I went running in that direction. I previously worked for a couple of different companies. I started at an investment bank early in my career and then helped start an early company called Grow Intelligence. I was one of the early employees there. They're now a more mature company operating in the ag artificial intelligence space. Later went to business school and received my MBA and used that that experience to really transition more to an investment role. So I invested in farmland as part of my summer internship and my program, and then later worked in private equity investing in agribusinesses before joining Farm Together to, again, focus on making farmland investing more accessible to retail investors. Awesome. So I think when you, not just you, but when we talk about investing in something in a mission-driven manner, sometimes folks can jump to the conclusion that, oh, it's got a mission, therefore it's not profitable or the model doesn't really work without the mission applied to it. Now, is that the case? Can you tell us more about the actual, like from the business standpoint, how does it all work and stick together? Absolutely. I I think when farmland mission is really a pseudonym for stewardship. And I think anyone who is operating in our space needs to be focused on sustainability because it makes sense for bottom line. So we're, we have the great fortune of being in in an industry where we don't have this tension between being a fiduciary and, and being a good steward of environmental assets or whatever it may be. They're deeply intertwined. If we are more sustainable and we create resilient soil systems, we use natural methods to, to reduce the need for inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, whatever it may be. We're decreasing our cost of goods sold, which means we're increasing our margin, which means we're increasing our net operating income. So we're being good environmental stewards and we're being better fiduciaries as, as a result of that. So in many ways, we don't experience the same conflict that I think many other managers may face when they're thinking about externalities beyond just bottom line. They move in tandem in farmland. When we think about capital appreciation in real estate, a big part of the math is is capital appreciation. You are going to be able to maximize the value of your property at sale when you have assets like really healthy soil and really adequate water and buyers are going to value that and it's going to come out in diligence, you'll get credit for that and you'll get dinged when you don't. You'll get dinged if you've eroded a lot of the nutrients in your soil and there's going to be a lot of amendments needed. You're going to be dinged by buyers who are looking at your property and thinking, okay, your productivity has been great, but I don't have confidence that you have the water that you need to continue offering this. So I'm going to budget in probably having a water budget of 200K a year for the next 20 years and I'm going to ding your purchase price by X because of that, right? So there's different ways that this will all play out. And the bottom line is if you are operating in a manner in which you have sustainability at the core of what you do and and at all of your decision making, I think it will pay out in spades, both in higher income through reduced cogs, greater margins, and fully maximizing the value potential of the land at sale. Cogs being cost of goods sold. So, okay, gotcha. Okay, so getting down to brass tax a bit, when you're looking at an individual deal or a target business plan, what do you look for in terms of, are you looking at distressed parcels and looking to fix them up, get the soil quality better and hold them in a little while, sell them off like a flip? Is it a long-term type cash flow strategy? Like, What are you really targeting in terms of the business model itself? Certainly. So I think taking a step back before 
answering your question directly on operations. Farm Together, we are a tech-enabled asset manager. So we have a few different products that we offer, some of them being different types of securities like crowdfunded securities, others being open-ended funds. Regardless of whatever product, our underwriting is we underwrite a property against different principles that we consider, risks, bare land, value for trees, vines, whatever it may be. And we need to gain confidence on the underlying fundamentals of the property, its microclimate, or any operating partners that we would rely on or tenants who would be potentially paying for rental income for the property before moving forward. And then, you know, once we have confidence with all that, certainly a big part of what we think through next is the value add creation. So what value are we going to be able to bring to the table as a manager of this property that may have been left off the table prior? And often that comes down to just bringing in best in class management practices across the board, whether it's installing micro drip irrigation and making sure we have super efficient water irrigation on the property so that we're not losing water. We're not, we're not dealing with runoff issues. So that's certainly an often one, one lever that we pull. Another would be looking at natural forms of pesticide that are more preventative. So one technique that we use a lot are using pheromone blockers. So we use pheromone blockers on our, on our properties during the mating season for different pests. And what it basically does is it disrupts their mating season. And so we don't have quite as high of a reproduction rate as you would otherwise expect fewer pests, fewer issues to deal with, and it reduces the need for us to treat for a given pest. If we're not treating for a pest, that means that we're not paying for a treatment. So our cost of goods sold is going down because we're not spending future, what would be future income on a treatment up for a certain disease or pest. And it also means that we're operating our farm in a more sustainable fashion. Those are fewer chemicals that are going onto the property. So that's another example of a value add that we may make. Another example could be if we're looking at a basket of properties, meaning multiple properties. So we may look in a given area and find that there we think there could be five to 10 different parcels available for sale over, say, two or three years. Collectively, it's a portfolio of maybe $25 million worth of property, which is very interesting for a number of strategic buyers in the future, be it institutional investment funds or or even other forms of strategic investors or family offices, you name it. On, as a standalone asset basis, maybe each of those parcels is worth $3 million or $5 million or even $1 million. As standalone assets, less interesting to bigger buyer groups. So you're more limited in, in who may have an appetite for that uh, portfolio property. So by bundling those together and um, creating a portfolio of properties, we're now creating new supply that may be more interesting to, or we believe will be more interesting to institutional investors in the future. Um, so that's another part of our strategy that we deploy when we are looking at implementing different investment strategies and moving forward with acquisitions. So those would be some examples of different value-add strategies that, that we undertake. Many of them are on the farm and using best management practices. I, actually, one that I just recently learned a lot about just talking with our asset management team that I think is super cool is one that we use both during diligence and underwriting and in farm management, and that's the use of drone technology. They're using aerial imagery from drones during the diligence period to look at canopy health and tree count. So if, if a seller is telling us that they far, or they're selling 100 acres and there's 5,000 trees on those 100 acres, and we run our drone over that parcel and we see that there's 4,200 trees, that's a pretty big delta. So we're going to question that and it'll save us time and effort. Maybe we won't even end up sending a, a team member out there and, 
incurring the cost of, of sending someone out there and spending the day there just to learn that property is missing 20% of the trees. When we're managing the farm, we might use drone technology again to look at canopy health and figure out, are there any areas of the farm that are experiencing maybe sunburn and need more sunscreen application? And by the way, trees are just like us as humans. They need sunscreen <laughs> to prevent burn and, and yield damage. So those are some fun ones that I think are really interesting that we've been using. Interesting. So you mentioned making, putting portfolios together to exit by selling to institutional investors. You see a lot of news articles talking about the how the rich are gobbling up all this farmland, blah, 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 blah. Are you seeing a lot of institutional interest in buying farmland as compared to other real estate asset classes? Or is that just something that they tend to buy over the years and invest in generally? I think the institutional appetite is uh, for the larger institutional investors is probably similar to what it's been, but we are seeing appetite growing in the smaller end of the space. So smaller pensions or endowments, maybe local plan sponsors like local. There's a local firefighter retirement system that recently had a farmland mandate, a couple of medium-sized cities that have had recent farmland mandates. So we're seeing smaller institutional investors, I think, becoming more interested in farmland. And I think that's because they're learning about the asset class. I think larger institutional investors have known about farmland and some are active, but the challenge is more on the supply side. So if you look at the United States and our history, contrary to what some news articles might claim, we are not a, a country that's been based or, or bred on industrial farming. We are, we've forever had many small farms and very fractionalized ownership. And it comes back to historic pieces of legislation like the Homestead Act and, and many others dictating parcel size and lot size and and this idea that many early families in America created and generated their wealth through agricultural real estate. And then those assets were transferred down from one generation to another within those families. And if they ever were sold outside of the family, it was most often to a neighboring individual who was increasing their footprint. So 98% of all U.S. farmland is actually privately held by individuals or private families. Only 2% is held by institutional investors. So it's a very small part of the market. And for institutional investors, if you're looking to deploy, if you're a multi-billion dollar plan sponsor and you're looking to deploy a hundred million or a couple of hundred million dollars into farmland, it's not easy to do that in a short amount of time across a few number of deals because there's only so many 20, 50, hundred million dollar farms in the U.S. that are up for sale every year. When they do come up for sale, they sure are competitive because you do have some of the institutional investors who are active, keeping an eye out for properties of that size. And when they do come up, they tend to be pretty hotly contested. So where Farm Together is very active is actually the, I would say the medium part of the market. Farms that are typically around $2 million in property up to say 15 or $20 million in property, property value. And this is a sweet spot for us because often individuals, private individuals are not, or are not typically looking at deals that are 2 million. They're more often looking at smaller deals. Institutions are not looking at deals under 20 million. Those are too tiny for them. So this is a segment of the market that we think has been a little bit forgotten and we see a lot of opportunity there. Interesting. Okay. How do you hedge for, first off, crop price variability and its risk, and then also for the risk of disease and blight and losing the crop and everything along those lines? I would have probably imagined those to be your two biggest risks in the model if I'm just taking a whack at it? Oh, there's plenty of risks. I, <laughs> I, I, 
life would be much simpler if those Fair were the enough. only two. But on the first, I would say with commodity price variability, there's a couple of different ways. First, we offer different products, different types of deal structures. So for investors who may not have an appetite for that type of risk, I would say a, a rental property would be probably a better fit where the risk is more counterparty risk and our cash yield is derived from rental income as opposed to operating income. But we have many investors who do want that upside and do want higher yields from operating income and operating income risk. And so for deals where what we call directly operated deals, where we are taking on market risk and commodity price and yield uh, variability, the way we mitigate against commodity price movement would be largely around how we market our, our harvest. So there's a concept in commodity marketing called pooled payments or pooled distribution, where you have a, a harvest, let's say we harvested 2000 bins of, of mandarins this year on a citrus grove, and we're gonna be selling those to different wholesalers and packers and whatnot. We could sell all 2000 bins at one time, but then we're sort of at the mercy of whatever the temporal state of the market is at that given moment. So what we like to do is employ pool marketing where we might break that crop up into three, four, maybe even five different pooled payments. So we sell a fifth of the crop in December, another fifth in say February, maybe a third in April. And over the course of, I would say typically one to two quarters, we've sold the majority, if not all of that previous year's harvest, but now we have multiple price points. And so we've hoped that we would have smoothed out some of the cycle and some of the commodity price variability by doing so. So that would certainly be one way. I would say another is by working in commodities that have dedicated marketing groups. So almonds have a very powerful, influential marketing board. Many other commodities do as well. The marketing boards, what, what they do a great job of, in addition to educating consumers and, and building demand for these different commodities, the tree nut boards have done a great job with alternative proteins. And you'll see almonds are now used for much more than just uh, a snacking food or for baking. We have almond milk, almond there's probably, I know there's almond hair products, almond skin products, almond protein powder, you name it. So those marketing boards do a really great job of thinking through new product and new uses for consumption of commodities, but they also help to establish commodity price floors so that growers know early on where they think the lowest price point may be that they may be seeing for a given season. And then you may be able to earn what's called a bonus payment for good quality. So going back to very early in our conversation about being a good steward and using good management practices, that's another reason why you want to have great quality nuts, fruit, whatever you're growing, because you often will see these bonus payments being made for, for output that meet the certain threshold. And that can be, if you're in citrus, it might be bricks count, which is the sweetness or sugar content of the fruit. If you're in tree nuts, it may be the sizing consistency and the coloring. So it differs by commodity, but that's another, another method that we see used quite a bit. To your second question on blight or loss or basically a yield impact. The benefit of operating in the United States is we have the most robust form of crop insurance in the world. So we're able to, to secure our properties through multi-parallel crop insurance policies. And multi-parallel insurance does often cover the events that you were describing, be it a blight or a weather issue. Perhaps it was an early frost or too much rain or whatever it may be. Obviously, that's still not a great event, nothing that we want to happen on our properties, but it does limit the downside. It is interesting, and I think good to hear that we have that, the strongest crop insurance in the world. I think we could have a conversation all day about strengths and weaknesses of capitalism, but being a capitalist system like we have, somebody had the idea and the opportunity to create crop insurance, and there's a 
like you said, robust market for it. So growers have a lot of options for their crop insurance and nobody wants to see a blight, but at least hopefully farmers won't be totally put out of business by a crop not coming out the way they'd hoped. That's right. Yep. So do you also touched on earlier unique ways to control pests like the pheromone blocking and, and so on. Does that provide a more premium product on its own, kind of like organic farming, if you will? Or does that kind of put your crops like one step above the others, if you will, let you get a, a better price? Does it lead to anything like that? I think it's probably hard to make that direct case, but I would say that is a sustainable practice. And so it would it would fall in line with many of the different labeled practices that you see. And I, I'm careful with my words here sure. because our view is sustainability in farmland is, is a pretty complex and comprehensive idea. So I've seen conventional farms that are farmed in very sustainable manners. And I've seen certified organic farms that I would argue could be much more sustainable. So that's why I don't like to necessarily stick with a standard or a label per se. I, I think it's a, it's often much more comprehensive than that. But I do think that I do think when you use practices like pheromone blocking, you do lead to better outcomes because again, at the very least, even if we can't show, I think we could probably show some demonstrable impact on quality by sheer volume of, of yield. But even if we take that off the table, again, we can show that we didn't use the same number of inputs. We didn't need another treatment of whatever pesticide would have otherwise been required. And we are reducing our cost of goods sold and increasing our margin. So at the end of the day, that's still a good outcome for the investor. Awesome. Very cool. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, David, I've got three questions I ask every guest in the show. Are you ready? Okay, yeah. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made? other than in your education? Best investment I've ever made, to tell you the truth, would be when I, well, both my wife and I purchased our first home. It was in the middle of the, I guess it was the beginning of the pandemic. Pandemic lasted a little longer than any of us thought it would. But I remember thinking at the time that we were buying at such a bad part of the market and fast forward three years and it ended up being a great investment so far, especially looking at where rates are today. So I think the the old adage is right. Real estate investment or real asset ownership is truly a great investment for many. And I think that was the case for us, even though at the time, if you had asked me when we were sighing on the dotted line, I only got myself there by saying we're going to be here for 30 years. So with rates, it makes sense. Now, three years later, I'm much more excited about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Preaching to the choir. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? 
Oh man, I'm totally unveiling myself as a millennial investor here, but <laughs> I would say I was very late, but I did eventually join the crypto bandwagon, even though I was hesitant to do so. And I didn't do as much research as I, I don't think anyone could have, but I did like the concept of the stable coin and academically, theoretically, it all made sense. And that's what got me a lot more comfortable with investing in crypto. And clearly even stable coins ended up not being so stable. So I would say that was my worst. Yeah, they're stable coins. Some of them had back doors and some of them just had flawed algorithms to begin with, but didn't that didn't really turn up until it was stress tested. Tough lesson to learn. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important lesson, I think it's kind of a twofold, but I think it's one, there's no such thing as a dumb question. So I think so often we see going back to the great financial crisis, regulators, bankers were in rooms, CEOs of major banks, treasury, you name it. Very bright people, extremely successful people pretending that they understood what was going on with the market, but having absolutely no clear, no clue how these mortgage financings worked or what these collateralized securities were or what they were comprised of. So I think if someone had just asked in those meetings, hey, what what's actually in here? What's the security made up of? How does this work? Maybe we would have avoided some of the calamity that we experienced. So I think never being ashamed to ask uh, a question, I think being able to simplify the explanation of something. I couldn't explain to you exactly what the stable point I invested in was was designed through or what safeguards it had in place. And I think maybe if I had, maybe I wouldn't have thought it was a good idea. I wouldn't have made that investment. So I think being able to simply explain to someone as if they were a kindergartner, this is the merit of this decision and why I'm making it is a really accurate representation of one's understanding. So I think those lessons ring true. And I think the last one is just at the end of the day, invest in, in asset classes or businesses that make sense to you, that you feel connected to, that are important to you in your daily life. I think if, uh, if you're motivated and, and passionate about the industries you're investing in, you'll ultimately take the time to, to do the extra homework and find the best companies or ideas that are in that space. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to reach out and get in touch, learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Our website's a great place, farmtogether.com. And any questions for me individually, I'm more than happy to connect. Uh, my email is david at farmtogether.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>